Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. we refer to it so often is because many of the most significant things that Jesus ever said, he taught on that night. Many of the most significant things Jesus ever did, they happened that night. Not, not long ago, we talked about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper on that night and that afterwards he, he went through the room and he washed the apostles' feet. And after he finished, he said this, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And hang on to that phrase, one another. Well, that evening, Jesus continued to teach. He actually taught for hours, going late into the night, into the early morning. And and shortly after teaching uh, about the washing of the feet, he said this in John 13, 34. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I want you to notice several significant things about that that very simple statement that Jesus made there. First, you, you hear that phrase, one another. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, The New Testament authors, the apostles who wrote the the, the books of the New Testament, they used that phrase, one another, and they knew what they were doing. This is one of the things we need to know to understand the New Testament. When you're reading, you need to know that consistently what happened, the job of the apostles, part of it, was to take the teachings of Jesus, something Jesus said in 30 seconds, and then to teach it further, to interpret it, to expound it, to clarify it, to apply it. Jesus, when he said that statement in referring to the one another there, you notice he said it four times. Four times he repeated the phrase one another. There was an emphasis there. He was introducing a new category in this New Testament a new category of love that had previously not existed and now was being introduced. It is the category of love that one born again, justified believer has for other followers of Christ saved by grace. That's the one another. You need to know that that's different than the command to love your neighbor. We're getting to that in the text. Romans 12 and 13 are going to have things to say about love for your neighbor. But love for one another is specifically referring to the responsibility that a child of God bought by the blood of Christ has for other believers. You know, so we, if, if you are a dad, you have responsibilities and an obligation to love your children, but you also have certain responsibilities Uh, and a love you're supposed to have for a stranger that you just meet. But the responsibilities, obligations, and love that you have for your children is greater and it's different than the responsibilities to the stranger. Well, in a similar kind of way, Christian, there are responsibilities, obligations, commands, and and an expectation, a command to love other believers and that is most practically lived out in the local church that exist that are even greater than the responsibility to love your neighbor. God has made something new in this new covenant. The next thing to notice significant about what Jesus said is you, you see the part there that he says, a new commandment I give to you. Now, what is it that is new about this commandment? Because the command to love, it's in the Old Testament. It was under the Old Covenant. The command to love your neighbor, that wasn't introduced in the New Testament. That's in the book of Leviticus. So what about this command is new? Well, well, one part is what I just introduced to you. There's a new category here. There's, There's a new family that God is building and there's a responsibility, but it's also this. 
It was new in that Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. That's new. The Christian is to love the fellow believer in a way that mirrors, imitates the love of our Savior, the way that He did love us in the work of the cross and continues to love us in the work of serving as our high priest. And then one last thing to notice in what He said, He said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. So the single greatest distinctive of the true Christian the true uh, follower of Christ that sets us apart from the world, but watch this, also is to set us apart from the false professor of Christianity. The single greatest distinctive is our love for one another. And, and, and by the way, you know, you, you think about that, the reality that this is most specifically lived out in the, in the local church, that this isn't the only place it's lived, but in, but in day-to-day life, this is the most significant way we live this. It's in the fellowship of the local church family, the local body of Christ. You realize that even us assembling like we do is a part of this commandment. It's not all of it, but that is a part of it. This is something unique that we do. We assemble ourselves like this. And I don't just mean like I have a meeting. The world has a lot of meetings, okay? But we assemble ourselves in a different kind of way. We don't just have a meeting. We assemble ourselves into family-like communities where we agree to enter into bonds of fellowship with one another and care for one another in a way that doesn't exist in the world. We, we agree to come into responsibilities to serve one another we, we agree to come into a community where we, we say from the beginning, I am not going to hate you. I'm not going to let bitterness live in my heart. I'm not going to let myself feel disgust towards anyone. We, we make that agreement before we come together. We, we join ourselves in, in gatherings of local communities like Jesus has taught us. And the rule that is to guide our life together is John 13, 34, the love of one another, even as I have loved you, command. Well, in Romans 12, where we are, in verses 9 to 13, we see 13 exhortations, and the theme that runs through the whole section is love one another, even as I have loved you. So you remember that the the theme that's running through chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, that comes up again and again is as a Christian to live and please and serve God, uh, looking at the various responsibilities we have. Responsibility to God, that was right out of the gates. Then we entered this section that we're still in, in verses 3 through 13, and it is addressing the Christian's responsibilities to other Christians. We just finished the section of verses three through eight, and the theme of that section was serve one another. Use your spiritual gifts to serve one another. So we finished that. Now verses nine to 13, um, what is going to happen here is quickly, it is rattling off a list of 13 exhortations. You know, we need more. We need the Bible to tell us more than just love one another. We need to know what that looks like. And throughout the New Testament, we're given more than 30 commands and exhortations that refer to the one another type of things. This passage has some of those. The theme that runs through it is the responsibilities towards one another. Now, it's not immediately obvious how all of them relate to that. Be fervent in spirit, for instance. So we're going to get to the parts where we talk through how is all of this connected and whatnot. But we're going to look at just the first one today because it is a, it's a big one and it sets the tone for all the, the other 12 that come after this. So today we're just entirely meditating on this first statement. Let love be without hypocrisy. So uh, exhortation number one, love unhypocritically. Look at verse nine, see the language again, and we're going to talk about it. So he makes the statement there, let love be without hypocrisy. If you've got an ESV, I think it says something like, let your love be genuine or something like this. Love without hypocrisy is the most literal translation, even though it might sound a little bit odd. 
I don't know about you, it seems a little bit oddly worded, but there's a point. And in fact, the point is genius. When, when, you, when you pause and consider, why is it worded like this? We are exhorted to love and love in such a, in such a way that it is not a hypocritical kind of love. The exhortation is, is that our love is to be real love and not a counterfeit, not an imitation, not a distortion of what real biblical love actually is. The love that we have for one another is to be love that is consistent with biblical love's actual definition and not tweaking the definition to a way we want or a misunderstanding. Your love is to be genuine sincere, real, not fake, not two-faced, not hypocritical. And the Bible tells us what love is, so we, we don't have to guess. We're shown what, what, what true love is. Now, I mentioned a second ago that our love is not to be two-faced, which is, if you're going to explain what hypocrisy is, that's a helpful way of saying it. Hypocrisy is when there is something two-faced happening. It's when the external doesn't match the internal. So if um, we have disgust for another person, but we're all smiles externally towards the person, there's something two-faced happening there. Uh, now, the biblical instruction is not to make the external match the disgust internal, okay? The biblical instruction is make the internal to match what we know we are supposed to be expressing on the external. That's a lot harder uh, than the other way around. But the, the idea of um, two-faced, it comes from the days um, when in acting, You've seen those uh, pictures of the mask that used to be where, where an actor would walk to the stage and the, the, the white mask that they would kind of hold on a pole and it would be a happy face or a sad face and the actor would step onto the stage and you know, okay, he's sad in this scene is what is happening there. Well, that, that kind of picture that's there, the wearing of a mask, the word hypocrite, the Greek word hypocrite refers to the stage, speaking on stage. It refers to acting. A hypocrite is an actor. The external, the actions, the, the tone of voice, what I say, it doesn't match what's actually on the inside. Now in the Bible, when we think the word hypocrite, we of course go to the Pharisees. Uh, that Jesus spent so much time um, re rebuking and addressing. When the Pharisees masqueraded as godly, because of their many religious activities, but internally. Internally, they did not have hearts that were in devoted, humble submission to God. They did not care for the widow and the orphan. They did not love people. There was just a religious kind of spiritual arrogance inside of them. That was hypocrisy. By the way, that's not the only way to have hypocrisy. Pharisees would represent um, hypocrisy on the right with legalism. The Sadducees were hypocrites on the left with theological liberalism. It can go different kinds of ways here. But true godliness, so, so, so here's, here's why what the Pharisees were doing was hypocritical. True godliness, true religion is devotion to God. And if there is devotion to God, we will love the things that God loves, hate the things that God hates, care about the things that God cares about, and we will observe His commandments when we love God. His commandments will matter to us when we love Him. True godliness, true religion um, is devotion to God, and so it is seeking to have the heart of God. So here, here, here's a for instance from the New Testament. You remember that occasion when there was the woman who had been afflicted by a spirit, we're told, and she was bent over crippled for 18 years. 18 years, can you imagine, being, being crippled over, hunched over in her back? And she came to Jesus, and Jesus healed her. It's a beautiful thing that happened. But one of the Jewish men in the crowd who was looking on got angry because Jesus healed her 
on a Sabbath. And he yelled out to the crowds who had come to Jesus. You can almost hear his angry tone. There are six days in which work is to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed. Jesus cried right back out at the man and cried out to him and everybody else who thought the same way he did. He said, you hypocrites. Why, why were they hypocrites? Well, they had a kind of zeal for the law, a zeal for a commandment. They misunderstood the commandment, by the way, and Jesus corrected that. They had a zeal for a commandment, but their zeal for the law was not zeal for God. It was not devotion, submission, and worship to God. It was just religious superiority. It was spiritual arrogance. They loved the law because it made them feel uh, proud and, and, and inflated and such. Their love of the law was not love for God. Because understand this, zeal for God's commandments is a good thing. The, the Bible says you should have zeal for the commandments of God. But watch this. Zeal for God's commandments comes out of zeal for God first. Devotion to God means I will love his law. I will love his commandments. But there is a way. There is a way to be zealous over law or over just like one commandment. And it's an idol because it's not out of devotion to God. It's simply out of religious superiority in the heart. And so that's why Jesus called the man a hypocrite. He was pretending godliness, but his heart was not in submission to God. We are told our love is to be without hypocrisy. There are lots of ways to do that. It's not just like the Pharisees. There are lots of ways to do that. Our love is to be genuine sincere, pure, consistent. If you love God, the God you love tells you things to do. He tells you people to love. The God you love, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, the one who bled. The one who bled and showed love to us says... Out of your love for me, I have some other people I want you to love. I want you to love all the other people I bled and died for. But, but Lord, they don't all behave the way I want them to. Watch this. Here's what the New Testament says. Accept one another as God has accepted you in Christ. It's the same instruction as we're given concerning forgiveness. Forgive one another. Why? Lord, they don't deserve it. No, that's not the basis. You forgive as you have been forgiven. Do you see this theme? And it comes up throughout the New Testament. God has had mercy on us. You show mercy to others. God accepted you on the basis of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We accept one another on the basis of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our love is to imitate the love of God. Our love is to mirror and imitate the love of our Savior. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said. It's genius. There is a lifetime of meditation in that one commandment in John 13, 34. Now, you've probably heard your whole Christian life uh, that the Greek language had numerous words uh, that are all translated simply into English as the word love. There are different kinds of love, and in Greek, they made a distinction between them. So, for instance, the word storge uh, was a Greek word that referred to familial kinds of love, the love of a, a father towards his, his children. There's the word phileo, okay? So you're, you're familiar with Philadelphia. That word is actually even used in the next verse in Romans 12, 10. Uh, Philadelphia, brotherly love. This is a love that the New Testament will sometimes use to refer the love that a, a friend has for another friend. Uh, a word that is not in the New Testament, but it existed in the Greek language was the word eros, and it referred to sexual love. It's where we get our English word erotic. But then there's the word, I'm sure you know it, Agape. It's the Greek word used most often in the New Testament to refer to love. The Apostle Paul used it more than 80 times just himself. The biblical love that we find in so many of the amazing passages, like in Romans 8, when we were told, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That 
word is agape. Agape is the love that God shows to his people. It is high, noble, holy, transcends the, the, the human distortions of love. It is a God-like, merciful kind of love. And I mentioned a, a bit ago that the Bible tells us what love is. We don't have to guess. It defines it so that we can never distort it and say, well, I like to think of love as this. Oh, who cares what you think? Okay. The Bible tells us what love is. We have a chapter that defines, explains, and shows love's characteristics. 1 Corinthians 13. The meaning of the word has been eternally preserved in the pages of Scripture so that we would not invent counterfeits, imitations of the real thing. I think it would be helpful for us to go over to 1 Corinthians 13. And in fact, I'm intending to spend the bulk of our time, the rest of our time in 1 Corinthians 13. So if you'll flip over there, it's the next book after Romans. In 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to read the first seven verses here in just a second, but just briefly a, a word on the uh, context. If you're in 13, look back at 12, 1 Corinthians 12. What's the, what's the subject matter of chapter 12? Spiritual gifts. And at the end of the discussion of spiritual gifts, serve one another. Look at verse 31, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. And then he goes right into the, the law of love. So he goes from spiritual gifts, serve one another, love one another. What happens in Romans 12? Spiritual gifts, serve one another, love one another. You see that pattern? Okay, so there's a, there's a similar thing that's happening here. First Corinthians is just where Paul goes into more depth about it. But first Corinthians 13, start in verse one. In the first three verses, he addresses the significance and weight and importance of love. And then four to seven, he describes agape love. So beginning in verse one. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Well, let me, um, let me point out just a couple of general observations about that, and then we'll start to get into some of the, uh, the specifics, and we'll look to see how that's helping us understand this statement from Romans 12, how we are to love without hypocrisy. So first, a, a couple general observations. Um, <clears throat> Proverbs tells us, to be careful not to fall to the right or to the left. It's just so infinitely wise because in so many situations of life, there are two ways to go wrong. It's not just one way to go wrong. There are two ways to go wrong. You know, too tough or too tender, too little or too much, too lenient, too strict, etc. There are ways that we can get love wrong as well. Too soft, too harsh. We need to be careful that our understanding of love and the way we practice love matches the Bible's definition of what agape love is. You know that in our day, what the most popular distortion of love is, right? The most popular distortion of love in our culture is never under any circumstances ever disagree with anybody. You know, the idea of love is you always have to show support no matter what, no matter what is being talked about, because if you disagree with somebody, you'll hurt their feelings and hurting their feelings means not loving. That is one way to get love wrong. It is a destructive way to get love wrong. But we also need to know there's another way to get love wrong. 
many times people understand that uh, tough love is needed in love and confrontation is something that the New Testament addresses that uh, for someone who's in sin, the most loving thing you can do is confront them. But it is possible then to kind of fall off the horse the other way and think that love is abrasive and harsh. And for that, it must be remembered other things that 1 Corinthians 13 says. Our love must be one that does all of these things, is kind and speaks the truth, shows grace and is willing to confront. Pretty tough to hold all of that together. Jesus modeled it perfectly. Jesus modeled it tough love and patience with sinners. Jesus modeled with the apostles. There were times he had to say hard things to them. And then there were times that he uh, gave, gave patient, gracious words to them to restore them. So that's, that's one observation we need to see. Another observation is this. Our, our love is to imitate God's love and we see the explanation. We see God's love demonstrated throughout all of the Bible. We see 1 Corinthians 13 describing it and defining it. And we need to know, though, some, some elements of God's love for us and what, how that then translates into how we are to love one another. You know, the world constantly speaks of falling in love. It speaks of it so often that sometimes even Christians can be deluded by this and think, well, that's the way that love always works, romantically and otherwise. And don't misunderstand me. It's a good thing when you hold a baby and your heart melts. <laughs> you hold a baby and your heart melts and you just feel affections welling up inside of you. That is a good and beautiful thing. That is God helping us to love. That's kind of like God giving us a boost towards love. You might've even fallen in love with your spouse, but we do need to know and understand this. Affections is not the same thing as love. Affection is a good thing. The Bible actually commands us to affections. That's feelings. Okay. So don't think that all speak all talk of feelings is just for hippies and yuppies. Okay. No, the Bible commands us. There are things not to feel. There are things to feel. Affection is a good thing. And affection has to have some part of love. All true love will have some kind of affection, even if it is pity on your enemy. So know that part. But if you hold a baby and all that happens is you well up with affection and you develop affections for your spouse and it never goes anywhere else, that is not love. Love involves more. Love involves a commitment of the will, a devotion, a, a, a decision, a commitment of the will to value this person and to do them good. A commitment of the will to value this person and to do this, to do that person good. And here's the starting point. The starting point is us understanding God's love for sinners like us through Christ. We in our sin. We are defiled, unclean, unworthy, unfit, undeserving of God's love. If you are new to studying the Bible, I get that everything I just said there might be a new idea to you and you might not like it very much because it sounds very much opposed to what you hear in the world. What I beg you to do, if you, if you think that sounds crazy, that I say you are unworthy of God's love, and I am unworthy of God's love. If you think that sounds crazy, I just beg you, read the Bible and see if that's what it says. Okay? Um, there's like 1,700 chapters in the Bible. Uh, so before you go read all of them, here are two chapters you could go to very quickly to see that. Read Romans chapter 3, which our brother taught in Sunday school, spent some time there, and Ephesians chapter 2. Re read both of those chapters very quickly. You'll see God's perspective. We, in our sin, breaking God's law, we are unfit for heaven. We are unworthy of God's love. If you have turned to Christ, you have turned to him because God loved you first. We were unworthy of God's love, and yet God chose to set his love on us. Anyway, you may remember we talked about some of this back in Romans chapter nine. 
If you are in Christ, you're saved. You are loved by God and you are loved eternally. But God did not fall in love with you because you are so beautiful and wonderful. God did not fall in love with you. He loved you when you were defiled. He loved you when you were ugly to God. You do have to understand that's what sin is. Sin is wretched, despicable. It is a foul stench, like a rotting carcass, unclean rags in the nostrils of God. God loved you when you were foul and ugly to him. And now in Christ, he's changing you into something that is lovely and beautiful. You were unlovely. He saved you anyway by faith. And now he is transforming you into something that is lovely. And in the ages to come, you will be lovely when you are made into a new creation. But we have to understand this whole concept of falling in love. That's not the way the Bible speaks. The Bible uses the word set and choose very often. First John, we love him because he first loved us. Deuteronomy 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because, and then he rattles off conditions that the people might have thought, well, God loves me because I'm wonderful. God loves me because I obey his law a lot. God loves me because I'm kind of special. Okay, no, no, none of those things are there. Why, why did he love you? Because he chose to have mercy. He chose to set his love on you. Deuteronomy 10, the Lord set his affection on you. Romans 9, God chooses whom he will to show grace to based on no conditions, based on not, not based on God looking down into the future to see who would be good and who would be beautiful and wonderful. No, based on nothing but his own decision. God loves unworthy people. That principle is then applied to us. We are to love people not based on their performance, their goodness, um, or any of those kinds of things. Our love for one another, now on other days we'll talk about love for neighbor, and that's based in, they're made in the image of God. They're, they're one of God's creatures, okay? They're, one of, they're made in the image of God, have sanctity and dignity. But our love for one another, which is a higher kind of love with greater responsibilities and obligations, our love for one another is based on acceptance by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your King, your Savior, the one who bled for you and redeemed you says, do you love me? Remember when Jesus asked Peter that on the bank by the sea? Do you love me? Your Lord, imagine a conversation. He says, do you love me? And we say, yes, Lord, I will do anything to serve you and show that I am grateful and I love you. And he says, I want you to love the other people that I bled and died for. Now imagine an imaginary conversation and some of the things that could come up there. We could say, but Lord, I don't know if you've thought about this yet, but a bunch of them are difficult. Some of them offend me. Some of them smell bad. Some of them root for football teams that I can't stand. Some of them vote for people that I do not approve of. Some of them, they haven't learned how to be kind yet, Lord. Am I supposed to love them too? Some of them do some dumb stuff. Some of them are weak and been spiritually lazy, and they're not living like they're supposed to. Some of them speak to me in tones that I don't like. And the Lord says to you, you love them not based on their performance. I loved you when you were unworthy, and I gave you a seat at my table. You give them a seat at yours. The basis of why we love one another is not the worthiness it's not the performance. It's not, I love you if you live up to the standard that I have set. It is, if this person is in Christ, I love them because of that. I love them because of Christ. God loves you because of Christ. We love one another because of Christ. That's the basis. Accept one another as you have been accepted in Christ. And all of that may sound well and good while we sit in air conditioning and padded chairs. 
But the real tests come in the life of the body. And I'm telling you, you know, um, when you live in a church family and you get involved and immersed in the life of the body, you're going to be tested. I'm going to tick you off at some point if I haven't already numerous times. The real tests come. What about towards that guy that you find irritating? Can you be patient with him? Can you have conversations and ask how he's doing once in a while, even if you maybe don't really feel like it? And can, can you make yourself have a good attitude while you do it? What about, what about towards uh, the one who speaks in a tone that you just find real off-putting? Can, can you resist the temptation to have feelings of disgust towards that believer? What about towards the weak Christian? The Christian who has not been running the race as hard as they should, and you know you're right about that. Can you bring your heart to not feel disgust and not condemn them as pathetic, but instead develop affections that wants my brother's good? What about that family that doesn't have their kids under control like they should, and you find that pretty irritating? Can can you develop grace that wants your brothers and sisters good so that you are willing to let those things roll off of you. You're you're able to want your brother and sister's good and pray for their good and encourage their good and work for their good. Can you resist the urge to condemn people as pathetic in your own thoughts and have affections for them and see Jesus bled for them, Jesus loves them. I will love them and work for them. By the way, the apostle Paul demonstrates this so well in the New Testament. I mean, we all know Paul was able to say tough words. We know that. But sometimes the way he speaks so tenderly of those who are uh, falling short and even of the weaker brethren that we're coming up to see in, in Romans 14 and some of those places where he says, encourage the faint hearted. Instead of just saying, well, you shouldn't be faint-hearted. What does he say? With gentleness, encourage them. This is the tone that we see the New Testament show. Well, those were a couple of observations in general about what we see in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, let me, let me go through and point out some of the specifics and show how it helps us understand this command in Romans 12 to love without hypocrisy. So first, love is patient. Love is patient with one another. You love your brother when you're willing to bear with him. You know, patience is in the Bible is a lot of times used in a way, not the way we do in our culture, where it's like, I'm in a hurry. Let's get out of here. Well, that's, that's, that's usually not the way the patience is used in the Bible. It's usually used more in terms of kind of long-term kinds of things, like you're suffering through difficulty and you patiently wait on the Lord and trust him. But it also means we bear with one another though we are going to have failures. We, love for your brother means you're willing to bear with him and not hold him to a, a certain kind of standard or I don't care about you. It means that we understand I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We are going to have to overlook some things in one another. Now understand, we're not talking about deliberate rebellion and unrepentant ongoing sin. The Bible tells us what to do there. And even that is an act of love when we do it. But we understand when it's not like ongoing rebellion and unrepentant sin, we are going to sin in that we fail in the ongoing kinds of ways of life like Paul and John the Baptist did, okay? The the churches had to show grace to Paul as well. Patience means we do not allow ourselves to feel disgust with another believer, another brother, or condemn them Uh, as worthless, pathetic in our thoughts. It's not evil to recognize when something is going wrong. See, this is one of the things we have to understand. Love is not pretending. Love is not pretending someone's in a better place spiritually than what they actually are. No, love sees with sober thinking and according to truth, but love is willing to be patient and to show grace to one another, our brothers and sisters, even when they are messing up. Because remember, the very definition of grace is showing graciousness when someone messes up. 
If we treat somebody well when they have treated us well, that's not grace. Remember, Jesus said, even the tax collectors do that. What more is that than anybody else? The very definition of showing grace is what we do, the graciousness we show when someone irritates or offends or frustrates or fails in their life. Love is patient. Love love is willing to endure with people and not just quit. Next, love is kind. 1 John 3, 18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Part of what that means is a lot of times people think that they love simply because they say that they love. No, love is um, acted upon. It is worked out. It is shown. It is demonstrated. It is, it is done in deeds of, of affections and care for one another. Um, love is a commitment to value the person and to do them good. Love is, is kind. And I know that even as I say that, remember you're living in a culture that is distorting definitions of words. Satan loves to do this. And he is distorting the definition of nice really badly and also the word kind. So we have to understand it biblically. True kindness is not this idea that I I can never disagree with somebody or I have to be supportive all the time. No, true kindness is willing to speak truth. But kindness speaks to being forbearing, pleasant, courteous, friendly, and considerate of others. Love is not jealous. Love is happy when my brother prospers. Even if you yourself are in a season where things are not going well, love is able to rejoice in my brother, my sister's prosperity. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Bragging and arrogance elevates self. Real agape love considers others more important than yourselves. Love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. Love does not act unbecomingly. I'm going to pause on this one for a little bit longer. One of the, your your translation of your Bible might go ahead and interpret the meaning of that and say love is not rude because that is the meaning of what's here. The basis, the basis for manners, politeness, courtesy, and respect is Love, it is the golden rule. Treat one another the way that you want to be treated. This is the basis for why we should be teaching our children manners and respect and courtesy. Now, I I would bet that even as I say that, there might be at least someone hearing this who's rolling their eyes, even if on their own mind. Because we are living in a culture that thinks of manners, courtesy, and respect as a joke, right? Watch some kids shows sometime. You know, I, I keep telling you about some of the dangers that come in kids' movies and kids' shows, and it's, you know, there's not cussing and sex scenes, but there's worldview things. Watch for this one. Watch the, for the laugh track when the cool hero in the kids' show makes the uh, uh, elderly people in the restaurant gasp, and the, the, the young hero's belching, and they're the cool ones, that kind of thing. What, what was being shown there? Satan is degrading culture by his influence. Okay, we have to understand the basic concept of courtesy to others is, is, the, is the law of love. It is treat one another as we want to be treated. Being rude is violating the principles that communicate respect and consideration of others. So, you know, why do we teach our children all these rules? You know, and there's, there's like a thousand of them, but by the time that they leave our houses, we have to have said, why do we teach our kids those rules? You don't jump on somebody else's couch. Why do, why do we do that? Well, love one another. Well, why are we not to interrupt one another? Why not dominate a conversation? Treat one another as you want to be treated. Well, why do we give our children all those rules when it's like, um, uh, like, like the potluck dinner that we have, that kind of thing? You know, why do, why do you give your children all these things like, you know, your toddler's just been chewing on their fingers, go wash your hands. Don't double dip your carrot. Don't go through the line a second time when not everybody's gone through a first time. What's the basis of every single one of those kinds of laws? The basis of every one of them is consideration of others. And it flows out of the law of love. Okay. Um, and and we'll, this may be kind of pointing forward to the love one another, excuse me, the love neighbor section. But 
love your neighbor by teaching your children not to be rude buffoons, okay? Love your neighbor by making your children a delight to society. And it's also love to one another within the church as well, to make them a delight to one another. But continuing on, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Listen, it's not love if it supports a lie. It's not love if it supports and agrees with someone just so that they feel good. Love rejoices in the truth. Love is unwilling to rejoice in unrighteousness. That applies to a whole lot of situations. And then here's the last one that I'll point out. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. This is a big one. Love does not keep a list of all the ways a person has offended me. Love releases people from the imaginary debt that we hold people in when they have offended me or if we think, imagine they have offended me. Love means we forgive one another. This is one of the most overlooked commands in the New Testament. This is a massive part of what is taught in the New Testament about practically speaking how we live as Christians. Jesus even went so far to say, you know where I'm going with this? If we will not forgive others, we ourselves are not forgiven. We ourselves are not forgiven people. It is one of the clearest demonstrations that we are children of God, that we are able to forgive other people. And all of it is rooted in what God has done for us. Like if we have any comprehension whatsoever of the cosmic treason that my sin is, cosmic treason, if we have any comprehension of where I was going that my sin rightly deserved, hell, not a slap on the wrist, not time out, not a firm word, weeping and agony in hell. And look what it took for our sins to be forgiven. See the son of God on the cross, butchered, and bloodied, that's what my sin deserves. I, I can forgive an insult. That's the basis. That's the basis. Look at the forgiveness that you and I have received in Christ. We can forgive others when we have any inkling whatsoever of what the forgiveness we have received from heaven is. We can forgive one another. We are eternally grateful to our Savior for giving us we can overlook offenses in one another. We can let things roll off of us. We can forgive things instantaneously. The, Jesus even said, forgive from the heart. Part of the consistent point is that love is serving and doing good to one another. Philippians 2 has one of the hardest commands in the whole Bible. Cons with humility of mind, Consider one another more important than yourselves. That is hard stuff. That, by the way, that's part of the Christian battle. A great part of the, the warfare, the Christian battle, is battling our own fleshly nature to bring ourselves to forgive, let go of bitterness, love one another, have brotherly affection, not let myself feel disgust for a brother. Christian, let your love be without hypocrisy, love in truth, love in word and in deed and action and service. And if you have never turned to Christ to be saved, you know, part of the message you have heard in this is that where you are right now is you are unfit and unworthy of the love of God and the kingdom of heaven. You've got to get the idea out of your head that you're, you're good. You're just not. Read the Bible and see what the real standard of God is. None of us measures up. In fact, we fall woefully short of it. But God is willing to accept you anyway on the basis of what Jesus did at the cross to pay the price of justice, raise from the dead, and offer eternal life through God pardoning, <coughs> cleansing your crimes and your sins against him. We, we, we plead with you. Believe in the Lord Jesus, trust in him, and God will forgive you of your sins. He won't base it on you thinking you're good. You'll never get it that way. He gives it only as a gift, 
when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, look to him, pray and tell him you believe and that you want to be saved and God will save you. And if you want to ask some questions about that, find me before you leave and I can be happy to tell you more. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are eternally grateful for the love you have given us, the love demonstrated in Christ. Thank you. God, we, we Christians, we, we now ask, help us to love like you love. I, I pray for our church's love, this church family, that our love for one another will increase. I, I thank you, God, that there has been a great deal of peace and unity, care for one another and service, but you tell us to excel still more. I, I pray, God, that the love we have for one another will grow, will increase. And I, I pray, God, that it would be something beautiful that people in the world see and it is magnetic. It draws them in. So help us to do this, Lord. Uh, help us for every single one of us specific ways that we have not offered forgiveness, that we have held on to grudges, that we have not been loving in the pure kinds of way we're called to. Help us, O oh Lord to apply this and obey. And I pray for any in the room that has never trusted in Christ, please draw them to yourself. Lord, we pray your blessing and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We are dismissed. Lord bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.